According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 18 is our scripture once again. Luke chapter 18. There are two parables in uh, the first half of this chapter, or the first 14 verses anyway. How long is this chapter? 43 verses. All right. Well, episode 31 takes us from verse 1 down to verse 14. It encompasses two different parables. When we finish this event, we will uh, actually be turning back to the Gospel of Matthew for episode 32, 33, 34, and, uh, and so forth. We'll be doing a lot of bouncing back and forth between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think, from this point moving forward. We've been in a section, actually, that's been almost exclusively Luke uh, for a number of episodes, and uh, we're just about now winding that down and getting ready to approach the Passion Week and being re- ready to approach uh, the really the, the final part of Christ's life that's covered by all four Gospels. So this uh, significant stretch that sometimes is called Luke's travel log, or it has other names, <coughs> other uh, titles, um, we're pretty well to the end of that. All right, Luke 18.1, He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and to not lose heart. Wonderful correspondence the Holy Spirit is giving us by allowing us to uh, have this passage as a part of our Life of Christ study, and yet to have it coincide so well with our Corinthian study, where in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, again, we've had a number of passages telling us about what God has provided that we might not lose heart. And so um, I'm catching on to the fact that uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to know this doctrine, (laughs) that we're expected to live this doctrine. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. And if we are, in fact, on the verge of losing heart, if the congregation's on the verge of losing heart, if the pastor's on the verge of losing heart, then we're really without excuse because God is making it very loud and clear that uh, all things pertaining to life and godliness have been provided, that losing heart is, uh, is our fault because uh, he has made all the provision necessary that we don't lose heart. All right, well, <clears throat> a message on prayer communicates that, and then a message on humility communicates that, and that's what we're going to study here today. Before we begin, let's make sure, again, through prayer, that we are humble under the authority of God's truth and prepared to receive today's class. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you today thankful for your truth and thankful for the privilege we have to assemble together to receive truth. Father, uh, what, a, what a testimony to your faithfulness that you've allowed us to remain in this building. You've allowed us to continue to assemble in freedom. These are all grace provisions. Father, thank you again. I continue to be so thankful for Live Oak Bible Church for their graciousness towards us in uh, allowing us to remain in their new building while we are constructing our new building. So, Father, uh, again, we give you the praise and the glory for all that you provided. Thank you for the work being done over there. Uh, Continue to lift that up for your protection, for safety, for the workers, for just blessing in uh, all the things that are happening. And, uh, Father, provide uh, for our move in your perfect timing, not too soon, not too long. We're in your hands, Father, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have really two things we're going to study out of this uh, episode. We're going to study parable number one and parable number two. How about that? Point one then is the parable of the persistent widow, which teaches us the uh, blessings of continuous communication with heaven. Continuous communication with heaven. And the more we study the uh, principles of praying without ceasing, we start to recognize that we are continuously to be in a prayerful attitude. We are continuously to be in a prayerful mentality. We may not be literally asking for things all the time. We may not be literally talking to God all the time. However, our attitude should be one of continuous conversation, one of a continuous connection, or we never feel like we're disconnected, or we never feel like we're not in touch prayerfully with our Father. It should be constant. And uh, in part, maybe our uh, our biggest uh, downfall to understanding prayer. We may be handicapped as, as uh, modern Americans or just uh, 21st century uh, Christians is the idea we have in terms of communication, in terms of maybe, you know, the telephone. Uh, 
where you dial in and then you start talking. And when you're done, you hang up, right? Let's get out of that mindset in terms of prayer. All right, don't think of dear Heavenly Father as your dial in and in Jesus name, amen, as you're hanging up. All right, um, if, if that's your hang up, then <laughs> I guess there's worse hang ups. But don't think of prayer as an on off. OK, don't think of prayer as a well, right now I'm praying or right now I'm not praying. It should be constantly this attitude where we are connected prayerfully. We are connected to our father. To the point where we are continuously praying without ceasing, continuously in tune with how he speaks to us in our prayers, how he confirms uh, with convictions of scriptures while we're praying or while we're meditating or while we're cycling the truth through our soul. So we'll have a few more thoughts on that, not only in in the context of this episode, but I think in uh, the messages moving forward as our Savior illustrates. Now, he did take time to go away and pray. And there are times that we are concentrated in our prayers where we just shove everything else off to the side and we go into our inner room or we fall to our knees and, and we're not doing anything else in the meantime. Uh, but what does it mean to pray without ceasing when I'm driving? All right. When I'm when I'm working, when I'm well, like right now, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm teaching a Bible class, I'm standing here. Does that mean I'm not praying at the moment? Okay. And trust me, if you knew how nervous I was speaking publicly in front of people, you would know that pray, praying without ceasing takes place a lot when I get up and teach <laughs> in a Bible class. All right. So this is what the parable teaches us. The parable of the persistent widow teaches continuous communication with heaven. Continuous communication with heaven. And it is the blessed procedure that God has given us to uh, be able to do this. All right, a couple of things to get us started. We've already run through, how far did we get last week? A, B, C, D, E, F, B? We, we, oh, man, we barely even scratched it. Okay, yeah, B is the one that has all the verses. Um, prayer needs to be taught. Prayer also needs to be shown. And there's an interesting tandem when you relate how this chapter starts back to how chapter 11 starts. And it's kind of an interesting tandem of verses to put side by side. Because in Luke 11, the disciples were saying, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And so prayer must be taught. And yes, we have to teach the doctrine. We have to teach the principles. We have to teach the, um, the uh, application and so forth. But beyond teaching, it also must be shown Christ gave this parable to show his disciples the urgency of prayer, the pattern of prayer, the priority of prayer. And so the, I think that we have a, a pretty neat link between Luke 11.1 1 and Luke 18.1. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they had to pray and not lose heart. Think how many stories you can tell to show the value of prayer, to show the necessity of prayer. All right. We got children we're raising up. We want them to be praying in their childhood, in their uh, young adult life, in their adult life. We want to ground into them the priority of prayer before they ever uh, even think about finding a mate and getting married and starting their adult capacity and things of that nature. We can teach them the doctrine or we can tell them the stories, tell them how prayer has impacted our lives, illustrate for them the importance of prayer. And uh, to do so repeatedly throughout childhood, I think, is, uh, is an invaluable uh, activity. If prayer is always the focus, then losing heart is never the result. And that's the point of this parable. If prayer is always the focus, then losing heart is never the result. And you've got all of your continuous action prayer verses, and you have all of your losing heart verses. And uh, you'll find a uh, tremendous correspondence between the two. And, uh, of course, Luke 11 was the, the uh, obnoxious neighbor pounding on the door at midnight. Um, Genesis 32 is the example of uh, uh, Jacob wrestling with the Lord. Uh, one that's not on the slide that we looked at last week was Genesis 18, looking at Abraham praying for the deliverance of Sodom. And uh, that was not on the slide, but we did look at that last week. Isaiah 62. What was Isaiah 62? Do you remember? You were here last week. Isaiah 62. I have posted you as watchmen upon the walls, watchmen upon the walls, and you who remind the Lord. What a great title. You who remind the Lord. Go ahead and put that on a business card, carry it around, hand it out to people, okay? 
Fallon handed me her new business card this morning. I appreciate that. Uh, but go ahead and make up business cards. This, this world needs more business cards. All right, make up a business card and put your name on it and say, I am the one who reminds the Lord. All right, you who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest. You understand, that's the imperative there in Isaiah 62 for continuous, fervent, effectual prayer. Acts 10.2 is the example of Cornelius. Romans 12.12, we're to be devoted to prayer. In a New Testament application, prayer is to be a devotion, something that you are devoted to, where you sacrifice other things in order to pursue this activity. Ephesians 6.18, where uh, as a part of wearing your armor, you're continuously in prayer. Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's four prayer words there. All right. Colossians 4, verses 2 and 12, again with a devotion to prayer. And our favorite, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, which is the pray without ceasing. Rejoice always in everything, give thanks, pray without ceasing. There in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right. Now the last things I want to tie together here on prayer, because this is the pattern of this uh, unrighteous judge. The unrighteous judge feared a black eye if he continued to frustrate the widow. The unrighteous judge feared a black eye if he continued to frustrate the widow. And that's uh, kind of a fun idiom that's found in the last little bit here of verse 5. He fears a black eye. He starts to get concerned uh, if uh, he keeps ignoring this lady. It gets to the point where it's, she's unignorable. That's how pesky we need to be. And we find out here, this widow keeps coming to him repeatedly saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. For a while he was unwilling. And we're going to key in on that here in a moment because what, what the application of this is for our father is quite interesting. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me. Again, we're going to have to evaluate what is the parable or what is the relationship of that to our Heavenly Father. Do we bother him? Is he bothered when we ask? Because she bothers me, I will give her legal protection. In other words, I will grant her request. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will... Beat me up. <laughs> Give me the black eye. Wear me out. Okay, there's the idiom there. Uh, the language of a, of a beat down where you just don't want any more. You just, no, no mas. All right, and just enough. And that's the attitude here that uh, is being presented. Now, this is an unrighteous judge, but how much more will our father be ready to pour out? Because he's commanded us to ask. And he has designed prayer to be a, uh, a fervent, effectual activity. I'll have some things on that here in a moment. This is what he feared. Okay? He feared the um, consequences to himself if he did not answer this demand. Now for a moment, let that sink in. This judge feared the consequences to himself the black eye, if you will, if he did not provide for the request. Now, our God is not an unrighteous judge. However, what would be the consequences to himself if he did not answer our request? What would be the consequences to God if he ignored our prayers? Not saying that he would, not saying that he could. But if he did, what would be the black eye? He would no longer be trustworthy. He would no longer be himself. And remember, God, omnipotence is not defined by God can do anything. God can do all things. He has the power to do all that is compatible with his nature. He can't lie. He can't sin. He cannot tolerate sin in the solemn assembly. There's a whole wealth of things God cannot do. So recognize this unrighteous judge is concerned for his uh, himself. Okay. God, of course, is concerned for himself in the sense that he is, has absolute integrity 
in all that he is, in all that he does. And he cannot violate his nature in any way. And so there really is a parallel here, even though it's an unrighteous judge being used as a type of God the Father, still the truth is this judge fears what the consequences are if he doesn't answer the request. And our Father, the idea of not answering our request is unthinkable to him. And I believe it's, it's a part of his very nature, it's a part of who he is, and it's in full recognition that there is a counterfeit Father out there. The whole purpose of this angelic conflict is to resolve, of, of, of humanity, is to resolve the angelic conflict. You understand that your father, the devil, would just love to have you come to him. He's just waiting. Oh, yeah, yeah, come here, come here, I'll give you what you want. I'm a better father. He doesn't understand. He doesn't care. I care. Here, I'll provide for this. All right? That's what, that's what the, the, the devil is just waiting to do. And trust me, he has no shortage of, of goodies that he can hand out to buy your love, to buy your affection, to convince you that he's a better father than... than I mean, this is... You probably had uh, friends or known people and so forth where these ugly divorce things take place. And then what happens to the children as they get manipulated? As they become the pawns in this tug of war and this wicked, horrible thing? And then you have step-parents involved, and then you have a competition between, you know, the good guy, bad guy routine, and, well, I'm better, you know, and, and oh, it's just malicious. Horrid when that happens. And, uh, you know, when I used to coach Little League, it just broke my heart. Because you'd see it, and, these, and they were just so manipulative, and using these kids, and the kids, here's the ugliest part of it, they learned how to play the game, too. They learned how they could start manipulating things, like playing off this mom versus that mom, or this dad versus that dad, and really working it, working it over themselves. Yeah, they're little carnal animals. They know how to. They can pick up on that. And I remember, oh, it would break my heart because you'd have, and they wouldn't be. They have so much hatred towards each other that one would bring the child to baseball practice and then go away. And then the other would come to pick up the child from baseball practice so that baseball practice got to be the rendezvous point where they didn't have to actually see each other. They could just drop off their kid with a baseball coach and then trust that, you know, the other one could pick them up after practice was over kind of a thing. So anyway, that's all unrelated to what we're talking about today. But it is an illustration in the sense that there is a counterfeit father out there who views himself. He vowed his fifth I will was I will be like the most high God. So what does that mean? It means he's going to be a provider. It means he's going to be a protector. It means he's going to have priorities. It means he's, he's going to try to replicate everything God the Father does. He's even going to produce a one-of-a-kind son to rule this world. Why does he want to do that? Because that's what the Father's doing. Okay? And Satan is so wrapped up in trying to do everything the Father can do that he's going to put forth an Antichrist to rule this world. Well... We need to learn from this. We need to learn from this. Verse 6 says, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Hear. I mean, this is an imperative. This is like in Revelation when it says, He that has an ear, let him hear. Jesus Christ is saying, Hear what this unrighteous judge said. Make application. Understand the doctrine, the promise, the principle. Make application of this parable. Will not God bring about justice for His elect? If this unrighteous judge is going to do it, how much more is our father going to do for his elect? Not just a nagging widow he's unrelated to, but his elect, his children, the ones that he's died for. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Will he delay long over them? Now, there is a principle here that we have to understand because he will delay, but he will not delay long. Look at that verse again. Will he delay? It doesn't say, will he delay over them? It says, will he delay long over them? You ever give that any thought? Consider how different those statements are. Will he delay over them or will he delay long over them? Those are two entirely different statements. And the denial that he won't delay long infers that there will be some kind of a delay. 
And that's a part of our growth as well. That's a part of his plan for our life. That he's a father, he's a faithful father, he provides, but he doesn't just instantaneously satisfy or gratify our, uh, our every whim. He's not handing out candy to little kids. Okay? He's designed prayer to work, but he's also designed prayer to increase our faith. And that comes about while we ask and keep asking and keep asking for whatever length of time he's designed it for so that the, uh, the lessons are learned in the meantime. This becomes, I think, a, an important concept too. Now, <laughs> the unrighteous judge is maladjusted both regarding spiritual and temporal issues. The unrighteous judge is maladjusted, both regarding spiritual and temporal issues. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear men. Both sides are featured in this. And I think that's for a reason. Because we may have prayers directed Godward. We may have prayers directed manward. And both prayers are legitimate. There's spiritual realm, heavenly realm prayers. There's also earthly realm prayers. Ideally, we like to not ignore the heavenly while we're praying for the earthly. Let's try to be more heavenly focused in our prayer life. But fearing God or reverencing men and respecting men, there's both a spiritual and temporal component to these requests. And God, of course, is neither. He's not maladjusted in either case. He fears. Does God fear himself? He loves himself. All right. He's properly adjusted to both God and man, unlike this judge. And so our prayers are going to be that much more effective. That much more effective. God is neither. Point E. God may delay, but he won't delay long. God may delay but he won't delay long. And there's a difference. You say, well, how long is long? <laughs> That's the key, isn't it? It's kind of like, who's my neighbor? Okay. Well, how long is long? How soon is soon? How quickly is quickly? Because the question is, I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. That's a promise. But don't think it's quickly in your calendar. Because how does the Bible describe quickly? Revelation 22 and verse 20 says, Behold, I come quickly. And Jesus Christ said that nearly 2,000 years ago. <laughs> All right? So, when he's promised justice quickly, how long does he have to bring that about? I say he has up to 2,000 years and then he's still not violating the word quickly. Okay. Oh, are you in more of a hurry? Oh, okay. Sorry for you. All right. You know, it's amazing who has acted as his counselor. When, when exactly were we placed as his, uh, you know, his advisor telling him the best way of doing things? You know, he may delay, and I believe he does delay. It's his blessing to delay. And we, we try to do the same thing in our own uh, child raising, in our own uh, provision for our children and so forth. We don't, we're, we're responsible to provide for our children. And we're commanded, and we want to uh, give good things to our children and meet their needs and feed them and clothe them and everything they, everything they could want or need we love them and we want to provide. However, we don't jump. We're not their slaves. We don't, when they stomp their foot and want something, we're not immediately rushing to, oh, you know, right here, right now, before, you know, I'm not going to drop everything to do this. Okay? And that's a principle. It's a very important principle. That the children have to understand that there is a chain of command and that, that we are the parents. And we have... Uh, you know, we're going to provide for them, but we're not jumping. We're not dancing when they play the tune, okay? And think about our father. 
Father, you know, I have a prayer request. Does he have to? Is he a genie in a bottle? We're rubbing the magic lamp to get this genie to give us all we want? No. If your attitude of prayer is that God's a genie in a bottle, sad. Let's understand what prayer really is. And part of um, part of developing our prayer life, and the reason why he delays is so that through our prayers we can actually have the attitude he has. Through our evangelism prayers, we can have his attitude. Through our intercessory prayers, we can have his attitude. We share in that mind of Christ the more that we pray over a matter. So, I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. His justice will come quickly. And yet, understand the definition of quickly according to uh, Revelation 22.20. Finally, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Prolonged night and day communication with heaven is an application of faith. Prolonged night and day communication with heaven is an application of faith. One that will grow more rare in the last days. One that will grow more rare in the last days. How common are prayer meetings? They're not common at all. Even in, uh, even in Bible teaching churches, they're not very common. And uh, even when they are featured, they're, they're typically not attended. Ralph was telling me, um, Pastor Ralph, Ralph Braun, when he was training me, was telling, would tell me stories about the 1950s in, uh, in Houston, down at Baraka. And they could have hundreds, you know, 500 people there in a service and have 15 or 10 for a prayer meeting. You know, just not even a tithe, just a fraction, see. And we have similar ratios. Uh, it's gotten better, though, I'll tell you that. I think probably because the conflict's raging. <laughs> so I thank the Father. I say, Father, yeah, make, uh, make things more tough, whatever. Just so we have more people praying. I have more deacons praying, more men praying, more husbands praying, more women praying. Let's have larger prayer meetings. And, uh, and, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything, especially while we're doing this construction project right now. Man, the most important thing going on right now are our prayer meetings to keep our perspective properly oriented. We don't want to be all weird because of the money that's going around. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know, when he comes and blows the trumpet, descends to the air, a great shout, we meet the Lord in the air. Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we'd be in a prayer meeting? I'd like to get caught in a prayer meeting. What do you want to get caught doing when, when you hear the trumpet? Okay? I mean, there's a long list of things that I don't want to be caught doing <laughs> when I hear the trumpet. But I think being in a Bible class like this would be awesome. Being at the prayer table would be outstanding. There's a long list of things that I would not mind being caught doing when the Lord returns. It would be wonderful because I'm about my Father's business. All right. Well, that's the first parable. The second parable now. If the first parable is teaching us continuous communication with heaven, what's the second parable teaching us? The parable of the Pharisee and tax collector teaches continuous humility on earth. Continuous humility on earth. And the truth is, they're not really different messages, are they? Think how linked they are. Continuous communication with heaven is highly conducive to continuous humility here on earth and vice versa. You know, it's only when you neglect your prayer life, you neglect your focus on the Lord, you neglect heavenly things, that you start to lose your perspective and start to get a little uh, too big for your britches. You start to get a little too full of how great thou art, okay? <laughs> Instead of how great thou art, right? Understand that? The parable of the Pharisee and tax collector teaches continuous humility on earth. And the fun thing is, is the second parable comes as an illustration of two guys praying. 
So the first parable is teaching us how we ought to pray continuously and not lose heart. And then in the second parable, God, the Lord says, all right, now here's a couple of guys that are praying. But make sure when you're praying, that, yeah, that's right, that you're not full of yourself and you have the right attitude. And the attitude is one of humility, absolute humility. And we've gone through that. We've, I've, this, this story should be not new to anybody here today. Maybe it's new. I don't know, but. He also told them this parable, verse 9. And he told the, the parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. It was a very pointed message. And if it applies to you, then you better pay attention. And uh, to some extent, from time to time, it applies to everybody. So we ought to uh, be honest enough to recognize that. We have moments of pride. We have moments of weakness. And Every one of us is going to lose track of divine viewpoint at some point. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, <laughs> God, I thank you that I'm so awesome. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Other people. It's the same language from verse 8. Nine, they view other people with contempt. In their book, they're the greatest, and everybody else is not them. Okay? The rest. Other people. So God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Aren't I wonderful? Thank you, Father, for me being so great. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You talk about extreme. God uses the language of extreme here. Here's on the one hand, total self-absorption. Here's the other hand, just total humility and unworthiness. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And to the extent that you do, to whatever extent, that's what you can expect as an eternal consequence. All right, quickly then. What do we do with this? Hmm. The parable is addressed to those Self-righteous types, not just self-righteous, but having been self-persuaded righteous types. Having been self-persuaded righteous types. Hmm. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. I was going to rephrase this. And actually, it was the next one I was going to rephrase. I'm kind of glad I didn't. Who are these self-righteous types? Okay, And why is it so despicable in God's sight? And who, uh, who told you you were so righteous? You know? It's like the Lord asking uh, Adam, who told you you were naked? Who told you you're righteous? How are you righteous in the first place? Because if you have the legitimate understanding of righteousness, you know that it's a gift of God, not of works. It's for by grace we've been saved through faith. It's only by grace that we have His righteousness. He is the justifier of those who believe. Now, if, if uh, you are what you are by the grace of God, if you've received it by grace, then why do you boast as if you have not received it? Why are you so awesome or convinced of your awesomeness here as if it's something you've earned and something you've deserved? See, just this very question, this very concept of self-persuasion. God didn't provide this persuasion. This is self-persuasion. Important difference. You and I have a persuasion, but it's God that persuades us. 
you and I are convicted of Scripture because God is the one who convicts us. You and I have a persuasion about being the sons of God. Why? Because God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are sons of God, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I don't have to convince myself of anything. I just have to be obedient to what God convinces me of, how he convicts me in the Scripture, how he leads me into the truth. See, that's the, that's the application of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if I self-persuade, if I self-persuade, what am I doing? And these are self-persuading types. What we have here is we have a participle with a reflexive pronoun because they persuade themselves. Persuading themselves. And... Um, it's not really brought across in the English because it says they trusted in themselves. And the idea of this trust is a persuasion. Self-persuaded righteous types. All right. It's a perfect active participle of patho. P-E-I-T-H-O. Patho. Number 3982. It has 52 uses in the New Testament. And the idea of patho is powerful uh, in... When you, when you survey the, the, every use that it has, and you notice how it's linked to pistuo in so many cases. Believing, faith. All right? Persuasion and believing are linked in passage after passage after passage. And the, the, the beauty is, is that God never asks us to believe blindly. He never asks us to believe in nothing. Okay? Because if you believe in nothing, then you have an empty faith. Faith is always placed in an object. Faith is always grounded on, a, on the faithfulness of the object of the one who's made the promise. And he doesn't ask us to just swallow it, but to be persuaded. To be persuaded. And that's the nature of, of the gospel. That's the nature of our Christian walk. That's the nature of so much. Be persuaded. And so um, it's like, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. Okay, we have... The links between believing and, and persuaded. Now, the idea of self-persuasion, meaning that you have to persuade yourself. Well, why is that? If it's something you have to talk yourself into or persuade yourself into, you've got to work up your own, then what are you really doing in your own human effort to convince yourself of, of something? <laughs> I think it's what a lot of atheists do, don't they? they? They really, really work hard to convince themselves that there is no God. And uh, they're working hard to cling to that belief. And they've really persuaded themselves that it's accurate. All right. Having been self-persuaded righteous types. It's a perfect active participle, meaning as a past completed action is present ongoing results. But it's, uh, it also has a uh, reflexive pronoun here showing that they're doing it to themselves. So persuading themselves that they were righteous. Really, really absolutely convinced that you're righteous. Okay? Well, you can do that here in time, but the sad news is, I hate to break this to you, um, when you get to glory, you don't get to seat yourself on the bema. <laughs> right? So, if you want to persuade yourself here and now that you're righteous, that's one thing. But there's one righteous judge, and that's the one with whom we have to do, and that's where we're going to stand. All right? The... Um, the sad thing is here, this is, this is just the nature of fallen humanity. This is what fallen humanity does because this is what the adversary does. And as a brood of vipers, fallen humanity follows after the course of our father, the devil. And that's what happens. And the problem is all of your righteousness is filthy rags. That's all it is. So what does this motivate? These self-persuaded righteous types view others with contempt. These self-persuaded righteous types view others with contempt. It is both the result and the means for how they've justified themselves. These self-persuaded righteous types. And if you want, you know, in parentheses, just put menstrual rags. <laughs> okay, I didn't put it on the screen, but Isaiah says all of our righteousness is, is a filthy rag. Okay. It's nasty. It's defiling. God doesn't want to look at it. 
It's what it is. And as righteous as you can be in yourself, in your humanity, in your flesh, Paul said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to the righteousness found in the law, he was blameless. He was the pinnacle of legalism. And he needed Christ. So these uh, self-persuaded righteous types, they view others with contempt. And the vocabulary here is exutheneo. Exutheneo, number 1848. It only has 11 uses in the New Testament. And we'll spend some time here this morning looking at them. The idea is despising. Exutheneo, despising. And actually, we've had it in, in, repeatedly in, in our First Corinthians study. So it's not uh, like it's totally alien. It shows up in 1 Corinthians 1, 28, 6, 4, and 16, 11. Uh, but the idea is, is that you view it uh, as of no account. You view it as of no value. Exutheneo. E-X-O-U-T-H-E-N-E-O. Exutheneo. Viewing others with contempt. Praying in a prayer meeting with this other guy and mocking him. Scorning him. Here's a tax collector praying to the Lord and oh well he's just a tax collector and I'm better than him. Self-righteousness <laughs> is it causative or is it uh, resultive? Views others with contempt. And I believe that's how they can justify themselves. It's both the cause and the means. And it's also the result. The nature of uh, fallen humanity. I can make myself better if, or feel better about myself if I'm cutting everybody else down. Okay. I can soothe my own personal insecurities if I magnify all the faults I find in everybody else. Then, you know, comparatively speaking, uh, I'm not all that bad. And then, wait a minute, you know, actually, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. Yeah. All right. I got a couple of minor faults and flaws and things but i mean compared to these other guys man not much really come to think of it i'm I'm pretty awesome okay yeah but notice when people do that of course i'm not talking about anybody in this room nobody here this is all just a generic third-party illustration but think about have you ever been a part of a legalistic church? Have you ever been a part of a ministry where legalism thrives? This is where this attitude just it, it, it percolates. Uh, man, this is uh, all you got to do is just prove that you're doing better than the next guy in the pew next to you, and 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 you can rise to the top of the of the legalistic game. And it's always uh, simple to just pick out the ones that are doing pretty crummy and say, oh, I'm better than them, I'm better than them, right? Why do we never pick out the ones that are doing pretty well? And say, man, compared to them, I'm scum, okay? Well, we don't want to go there. Pride won't let us go there. So we find the ones that are worse than us, or we think are worse than us. And then that's where we draw a comparison and say, yeah. And it's just uh, tragic. All right, exutheneo. Let's look at these terms. Luke, Luke has a couple of them, not only here, but also in chapter 23. And then uh, his third use comes in Acts, Acts 4.11. The remainder of these are all Pauline usages. All right. But looking at others with contempt, scornful that this tax collector would even be in the same temple at the same time he is. Uh, notice in Luke 23.11, And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. The mistreatment of our Savior here on the day of his trial. That, of course, is a literal use. Oftentimes in our mental attitudes, it's more metaphoric or more figurative. And then Acts 4.11. What's happening in Acts 4? No, not Stephen. Um... Well, Peter and John are uh, answering to the high priest and they're not going to shut up even though they're told to shut up. But they start quoting scripture. And one of the scriptures they quote 
is quite remarkable. And I think it's a neat term here, and it gives us a good flavor for what this contempt is all about. And it says, uh, here's Peter and John, and they're, they're describing why it is that they're not going to stop their ministry because they're serving Jesus. And uh, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man here stands before you in good health. And he is the stone, the stone which was rejected, despised, held in contempt, viewed as worthless. The stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given by men by which we must be saved. So this view with contempt is the idea of despising, the idea of rejecting, the idea of just dismissing totally out of hand, saying, I have no use for that person whatsoever. I have no use for that person. You understand the pride involved in that means you only view people from the standpoint of what they can do for you. And if they can't do anything for you, then you've got no use for them, then they're not worth anything, then they're to be despised. Does this Pharisee have any use for the tax collector? None. The tax collector is not going to promote this Pharisee in his rabbinic school, in his, uh, in his work as a, as a scribe or as a Pharisee. This tax collector does nothing for this Pharisee and what he's trying to accomplish in life. And since he does nothing for him, he's despised, held in contempt. And uh, again, I think if you look at the quote there in Acts 4.11, you realize that is there not an attitude that despises Christ when you despise other people? What are you really doing? Whoever it is you're harboring mental attitude sin for, stop and recognize that Christ hung on the cross for that person just like he hung on the cross for you. And so as you harbor mental attitude sin against whoever, consider who you're holding in contempt. Is it that person or is it Christ? When you despise somebody, when you're so full of yourself and looking at somebody else as worthless, <laughs> just thank God Jesus didn't look at you that way and, and ask why. Why am I so prideful? I don't want to be the Pharisee. I want to be the tax collector. Okay, And this parable, I love the way this parable uses the language of extreme to show you miles apart and say, what's it going to be? You're going to be the Pharisee or you're going to be the tax collector? You're going to be full of yourself or are you going to be humble? So those are Luke's usages. Uh, Paul's usages. Romans 14. Romans 14. I love Romans 14. You know... I think it'd be great if I could uh, command every believer in Austin Bible Church to read Romans 14 twice a day for the next six years. Wouldn't that be awesome? Read it twice a day for the next six years. The whole chapter. Accept hmm. the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to ex utheneo, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And so here is the parallel where contempt is put in tandem with condemning, with judgmentalism. And we're not to do either. And whatever the issue is, whatever the faith application is, in the realm of personal convictions and applications, that's what this chapter is about. Personal convictions and applications. And uh, each one of us, of course, is answerable to Jesus Christ as He's convicted us in the Scriptures, as we are led to make application. And it may be on a, you know, here it's meat sacrificed to idols. 
you know, if you want to update it to more modern things, maybe it's smoking, maybe it's dancing, maybe it's drinking to moderation, whatever it is. And you've got a conviction of the Scriptures. And your brother's got a different application of the conviction of the Scriptures. Maybe your spouse has a different conviction of the Scriptures. That adds another thorn into the, into the mix. All right? But regardless, let's recognize that each one of us is accountable to the Lord as we're convicted to make application based on what we believe is the doctrine that the Scripture puts forth. And the truth is, is two believers can exercise opposite convictions and both be right. And both be right. Because they can eat the meat to the glory of Jesus Christ or they cannot eat the meat to the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay? Hmm. I know a man that will not spend a dollar at uh, Amazon.com because of whatever. The, the political views or the liberalism or the whatever. Uh, the philosophy, whatnot. Between uh, Amazon, Amazon, I guess maybe they're giving domestic, uh, you know, health benefits to homosexual partners or whatever they're doing. Who knows what they're doing? They're just—it's a worldly company, and they're doing what they're doing. And so, a brother of mine, a brother of yours, a brother of ours in Christ, uh, it has come under a conviction that they don't want to support that. They don't want their dollars benefiting a company that's doing that. All right, that's. His conviction. And, I, and I'm not mocking him for that. I don't share that conviction. Okay? Because my faith conviction... And so this brother, every book he buys, if it's a Christian book, he buys at ChristianBook.com. Christian Book Distributors. Okay? Which is another great place to get books. I have found that it, maybe one book out of ten will be cheaper there. Nine times out of ten, it's cheaper on Amazon. Do I like CBD? I love CBD. I've been getting CBD catalogs since I was, before I was married. Those CBD catalogs are kind of fun to flip through and circle. I want this, I want this, I want this. And then you just get to the, the back and then you throw it in the trash and wait for the next one to come next month, right? Um, so I love CBD, but they don't have the, the lowest prices. Amazon uh, has the larger volume, the Better discounts, the better prices. Okay. Now, in my faith conviction, uh, I am thankful. I want to be a steward of God's resources. I want to, uh, you know, the church is very generous in the in the book allowance that I'm provided. Um, I get to buy books, and I have a budget to buy books, uh, which is uh, I, I can't imagine. You know, when I was growing up, I'm going to find a job where someone's going to pay me to buy books. Really? Okay, but it's part of the grace of our deacons in this congregation that uh, they provide a book budget. I'm thankful for that. So I want to be faithful to make maximum use of that. All right. And so if I get a cheaper price, what can I do? I can say, thank you, Father, for this cheaper price. Thank you that I get more books for the dollar. Right. And uh, to do so for the glory of Jesus Christ. I trust that I can do that for the glory of Jesus Christ and my faith conviction is, is fine with it. Somebody else says, no, I would rather, I'm going to pay a little bit more, but I'm willing to pay a little bit more because I want to support this Christian bookseller and I don't want to support this, um, this uh, other establishment. Or whatever, you know, maybe it's Barnes & Noble or maybe it's, you know, whatever. Okay, maybe it's Apple. I want to pay Steve Jobs and, and whatever. I don't want to pay Michael Dell or whatever it is your conviction comes to. All right. As far as I'm concerned, God lets these unbelievers become fabulously wealthy. And oh well, yeah. And he gets to, through that, he gets to provide for his children. See, which I think is wonderful. Now, so don't regard with contempt. In verse 3, notice that regard with contempt is equivalent to judging. Equivalent to judging. And neither the one who eats nor the one who does not eat, neither the older or the younger in terms of maturity status, is to have an attitude against the other. 
Who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master? He stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. At the judgment seat, they're going to stand. No matter how hard you try tearing them down here in time, Christ will make them stand before him and before his Father. Now, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. This is your personal conviction for application of a principle of Scripture. And uh, the, uh, and the issue here. Verse 10, likewise, is the same parallelism. Regarding your brother with contempt, judging your brother, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. We have no room to uh, hold another be- believer in contempt. If anything, I can appreciate it. I may not agree with it. I may think it's kind of goofy. But I'm not going to mock it, and I am not going to condemn it. I'm thankful. I wish we had more believers that made faith conviction decisions. All right. Even if I disagree with it, at least it's a faith conviction decision. Man, praise God, the believer has a perspective for doing something like that. All right, the First Corinthians uses one twenty-eight, six four, and sixteen eleven. And here it's uh, interesting how God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen. Despised. If the world is despising you, the world mocks you, the world regards you with contempt, that's who God chooses. So they might nullify the things that are. It's a great... uh, principle there 6 4 is why we uh, have no business taking a brother to court suing a brother because they are judges who are of no account in the church they're of no account I don't care if you take it to the US Supreme Court those judges have no standing in this local church they have no standing in the things of the Lord. They, are, they have no um, place, no use. Kind of an interesting use of uh, the term. But in, in spiritual matters, we shouldn't take spiritual matters for church age and take it to a secular court. The fear was that uh, they were so carnally minded that uh, Paul was going to send Timothy to them and they were going to despise him. If Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace. Say, well, who would despise Timothy? Oh, a lot of people. They were despising Paul. In many, in many respects, if a pastor is faithful, then that's going to open the door for being despised because the Lord's going to be despised. The carnal mind is not going to appreciate truth being spoken. And uh, when the carnal mind doesn't appreciate truth being spoken, then what's the answer? Kill the messenger. <laughs> right? Well, who does he think he is? That dirty, rotten, no good... Son of a gun. Okay. And then it becomes a a personality thing. Isn't that remarkable? Hopefully we have enough humility and love for the Word of God that we can grow no matter what the personality thing. Faithful teachers that have some of the weirdest personalities God ever allowed to walk this earth. But they... uh, (laughs) They love the Lord. They can study. They can teach. They got a gift. Yeah. Second Corinthians ten ten. Let's get through the last of these. It is ten fifty nine. Second Corinthians ten ten. Part of their knocking against Paul is say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. 
They viewed Paul with contempt. Of course, they're going to view Timothy with contempt. Galatians 4.4, the neat thing about the Galatians is that they did not view Paul with contempt, even though his condition left him rather uh, disfigured. That uh, his bodily illness, and we don't even know what it was, strictly speaking, but Paul has some kind of a condition that others made them uncomfortable. And I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Okay? You know, do you have objectivity for doctrine if the pastor's a hunchback? <laughs> right? Or has some other deformity or some other blemish or maybe a, a disfigurement of whatever sort? Elephant, what do you call that? Uh, I'm out of time. First uh, Thessalonians 5.20, Do not despise prophetic utterances. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if the Word of God is going forth, don't despise it. Do not despise doctrine. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this uh, parable. We'll pick up a little bit more next time, Father. Uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee despised the tax collector. The tax collector loved you. And I pray, Father, that we would come to understand the humility that you expect of us. What does the Lord require of us but to walk humbly with our God? And I thank you that you've been teaching us these things. You gave us the same message, really, in Micah last Sunday. And here we are again, Father. Get our attention. Keep us from losing heart. Keep us walking humbly. Keep us in prayer. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.